Hey everybody, welcome. You want to grab your seats? Grab your seats. Tim's got 86 minutes on there, so I'm going to be going for 86 minutes on the... <laughs> settle in. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Did you guys know that? Yeah? Anybody going to be watching the game? No? Eh? Okay, Eagles fans, raise your hands. No, there's no Eagles fans. Chiefs? Any Chiefs? Okay, okay. Well, um, wrong choice. Sorry. Eagles. Going for the Eagles. Uh, Jalen Hurts, their quarterback, is the man. Used to play for Alabama. Roll Tide. Yep. <laughs> um, all right, so, yeah, we got a lively bunch. That's good. Good work, crew. Um, so, also, if you want... Um, so we've got the baby bottles, a great opportunity to um, serve in the pro-life area. We've also got 40 Days for Life is doing a prayer vigil outside of Planned Parenthood in San Luis Obispo. So if you want to join in for that, it's going to be really great. Um, I'm going to be there, but they're doing it for, um, they're basically doing time slots uh, in the end of February to the beginning of April. March, no, March. Yeah, yeah. To February to March, um, and they're, uh, you can pick a time slot. They're just trying to cover it in prayer and hopefully um, save some babies in the process. So um, that's the plan there. If you guys want to jump in on that, you can talk to me after or head to the info center. Um, we'll, grab, we'll get you the information there. Also, um, you'll notice that Pastor Steve and Jolene aren't here today. Um, and so the reason for that is... Um, they did take the month of January off. Uh, it ended up being a time that was largely dominated by caretaking and in the hospital and everything with my grandma. And so they are, um, they're out actually trying to rest now. Um, so they say that they love and miss you. The elders encourage them to go and just, uh, just hopefully get some good time of rest. So uh, keep them in your prayers as well. We love them, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. It's okay to respond. You don't have to sit there quietly. Um, so, anyway. Uh, today we're talking about identifying false prophets and false teachers. Okay, so just a nice light topic. Um, that's where we're at in Second Peter. And honestly, when I, when I read the passage, I, I was so stoked. I, um, so anyway, here we go. We're going to jump in. But first I'm going to pray. So Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you that your word... Um, gives us everything we need to, uh, to follow you, to serve you, to love you. Uh, help us to do that well. God, we just trust you to meet us here. Um, and we pray that uh, as we dive into this passage, you'll just enlighten us, that you'll um, bring truth to us. Uh, we just want to, to learn from you today. So um, just meet us here as we sit at your feet to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so... 2 Peter 2 is basically a laundry list of things to look out for when trying to identify false prophets and false teachers. Um, so we're going to go through this passage, and um, basically it's a lot of things based around integrity and character that we need to be looking at to tell if somebody uh, is a false prophet or a false teacher. Okay, so just like they were trying to identify false prophets and teachers in their day, we'll be doing the same today. Uh, the same things are happening today as they were then. So um, first, before I jump in, 
The definition of a prophet, if you are unfamiliar, if you're new to church, uh, the definition of a prophet in a general sense is a person who speaks God's truth to others. So just so that's out there, a person who speaks God's truth to others, that's a prophet. So uh, two, 2 Peter 2, um, 1 says, but there will also be false prophets in But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. Talking about Jesus. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. So we can learn two things from that first passage. We can learn that... um, that they bring destruction on themselves. A false teacher, they're bringing destruction on themselves. And then also, um, if you are a Calvinist in the room, you don't have to raise your hand for that one, but if you're a Calvinist in the room, this might be a little bit hard for you to identify with. It might be kind of hard to understand. Um, Even denying the Lord who bought them. So typically, Calvinists believe that you cannot lose your salvation, and Armenians believe that you can. So um, if you're in the Armenian camp, this will be... You know, just straightforward. Yeah, he's, they're denying those that the Lord has purchased with his blood. Um, Calvinists, I'll let you study this on your own. You guys can jump in if you'd like. Um, but verse 2 is, Many will follow their evil teachings and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. The New King James Version of verse 3 says, By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. So our first point today, false prophets and teachers will exploit you with deceptive words. So that means that a false prophet is not going to come up here and say, I'm a false prophet. Please listen to me now. You know, they're going to, they're going to exploit you with deceptive words. So we need to be cautious of that. Um, that means that we need to know what a false prophet or a false teacher might say or what they might be doing. So we're going to kind of go over that today. Um, so number one, false prophets and teachers will exploit you with deceptive words. I don't know if you guys have heard of this new book that was released um, by Bethel Church. It's called The Physics of Heaven. Uh, it's by Judy Franklin and Ellen Davis, two people who are intimately integrated into the community of Bethel Church and the movement of Bethel Church. Um, this book has, um, has really uh, given a lot of light to what Bethel Church is doing. They're very upfront about what they're doing now. Um, and so we're going to re- look a little bit about what Bethel Church is doing in, uh, today. So um, Bethel Church, in this book, they start the book out. It's called The Physics of Heaven. If you want to look, look at it, read it, read it yourself, you know, research it yourself. But they start this book by, by saying that there's a power out there that the church has never experienced before. That's red flag number one. Saying that, oh, here's something that you've never seen before. That we've not even, they say that we haven't even fully tapped into from Pentecost until now. So the apostles weren't even walking in it. There is a power apparently available to us that we have not tapped into. They say that God has told them to prepare for a new Pentecost that will be 10 times more powerful than the original Pentecost. They, so that's red flag number one. They're, they're putting out there that there, are, there is a power that you can attain that has never been experienced before. Okay, red flag. 
Red flag number two. If you haven't been paying attention to Bill Johnson and his teachings, he continually teaches and stirs up an unnatural craving for the supernatural. An unnatural craving basically means that we should be seeing uh, amazing supernatural miracles every single day. Every believer should be seeing incredible supernatural miracles every single day. If you're not, there's something wrong. And they continually quote this passage that drives me insane. They continually quote this passage that says, um, we'll do even greater things than Jesus. You guys remember that passage? Which sounds ridiculous, right? How are we going to do greater things than, than Jesus? How am I supposed to do greater things than Jesus and you and you and you? Each one of us, we're, we're supposed to do greater things than Jesus. And obviously, it's laughable, right, to think about us doing something greater than Jesus, like our lives living up to something greater than Jesus. But what that passage was talking about was not each individual person, like they take it out of context and say, it's not each individual person is meant to do greater things than Jesus. It's the collective church as a whole, with the Holy Spirit resting on it, would do greater things than Jesus. From that point, the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, resting on the believers, from that point throughout history, is, is better for the church than if Jesus were to have stayed himself. Does that make sense? Okay. So we are not expected to be doing greater things than Jesus every single day. So they throw out this bait that, that we should be experiencing these supernatural miracles, and, and if you're not, then read on. Um, and they, they th proceed to tell us that we need to, to be able to attain this power, we need to go into the New Age belief system and pull out different things that the New Age religion has discovered bring them back into Christianity and we should worship our God that way because that will open up our eyes to be able to ascertain these supernatural miracles. So when they're writing this book, the author um, realizes that this might send off or sound off some um, deception alarm bells, if you will, or um, discernment, like of believers who are reading this, like, oh, this might cause them to use their discernment and they may be hesitant, which is good. We should all be hesitant <laughs> with that sort of stuff going on. So they realize this and the, the woman who writes the book is Bill Johnson's uh, assistant at the time when she's writing it. So she goes to Bill Johnson and she she's struggling with it herself. She's saying, I've been sitting under your teaching and I know you've been teaching this stuff, but how... Like, I'm feeling like my discernment is going off a little bit. And Bill Johnson responds to her, quote, um, Then your devil is too big and your God is too small. So he takes this pastoral moment that could have been very powerful, and he tells her that her God is too small and her, her devil is too big, basically saying that you need to, and they, they say this in the book, that that. God's ability to keep us is mightier than the devil's power to steal us away, which is totally contrary to what Paul and Peter and all these apostles have said. They're constantly warning about a counterfeit. They're constantly warning about people who, are, who will sway you away from the faith. It's, it's not an issue of God's power and might. It's not an issue of God's power and might. It's an issue of human depravity, right? It's, it's not God's power and might that's so strong to hold us 
It's our fallibility, our ability to just um, to sin endlessly, right? Our heart is deceitful and wicked. Um, Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 32 in the New King James says, When the Lord your God cuts off from you before the nations which you go to dispossess, so he's talking to Israel, and Israel is uh, taking over all these nations. Um, So this is what he's encouraging them to do. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? And I will also do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, they have done to their gods. For even they burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. That's the truth. We should not be taking from another religion their ideologies, their ways of worship, and bringing them into Christianity to worship our God in that way. We should not be doing it. Uh, the book then, uh, the, the further it goes, the more crazy it gets. So they also talk about positive and negative vibrations a lot. They talk about how it wasn't God's spirit at Pentecost that held the power, that it was the sound, it was the vibrations that held the power at Pentecost that did that miracle. They claim that it's that same sound and those same vibrations that were responsible for creation as well. It's in their book. They're saying that it's not God himself who did the miracles, it's the vibrations, it's the sounds that holds the power And so that's what we need to get a hold of. We need to get a hold of that same sound and that same vibration so that we can, you know, experience that 10 times Pentecost. It's scary stuff. Bill Johnson also did this prophecy exercise um, with his pastors. He got got all of his pastors together, and he said he expressed his concern for a lack of prophecy in the church. And so he gets them together. There's video footage of this. Gets them together. They all sit in, a, sit in a room. And Bill Johnson encourages everybody to close their eyes. And he says, I want you to imagine what Jesus might say to you right now in this moment. So everybody closes their eyes and they all imagine what God might say to them in that moment. And then after that, they go around the room and share what they feel like God might show them in that moment from their imaginations. And then Bill Johnson says, there you go, you just prophesied. Which is insane, because prophecy is from God. It's not my imagination dreaming up a prophetic word that I feel like is true, and then saying it, and that's prophecy. Prophecy is from God, it's a message from God, delivered through us to others, okay? We are not the instigators of prophecy, God is. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His power, His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. So we do not, once again, we do not need to go to other religions 
to gain their wisdom on how to worship our God. We're given all things that we need that pertain to life and godliness. So 2 Peter 2.4 continues, and uh, Peter gives three examples of how God exacts judgment on the unjust. So number four says, or verse 4 says, For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell and in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. So some try to interpret this verse via Genesis 6. You can do your own studying on this. I'm not going to get into that whole topic, but it's, uh, we can just use this as an example of God uh, exacting his just judgment on the unjust. Verse 5 says, And God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented by his, uh, in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. So we don't need to be consumed by fear when the world around us is evil. God is faithful to deliver us. He's faithful to remain faithful to us. And we can also trust that he's He's going to um, justly judge the wicked, right? He's going to punish the wicked. So that's not our responsibility. That's God's. Verse 10 says, He is especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desire and who despise authority. So number two, false prophets and teachers follow their own. This is one, um, one symptom that we can look at. They follow their own sexual, uh, twisted sexual desire and they despise authority. That means that they can't be corrected. So if, if somebody came up to the pastor after they preached and said, hey, I think you got this wrong, they should be able to accept that correction and do some more studying. A false teacher will not accept that correction. I'm really, uh, it's interesting because in the day of social media, we can gain insight from so many different spiritual leaders around the world. Um, we can watch YouTube videos of pastors from anywhere, and um, which is great. It's great in some senses, but it's very bad in this sense. If we cannot evaluate people's lives and their character, then how will we know if they are a false teacher or not? This is so far. This is all Peter has talked about: is their character. Are they a person of integrity? That's one of the first signs you can tell somebody is not a, a true prophet or teacher. Verse 10 continues. It says, These people are proud and arrogant, daring even to scoff at supernatural beings without so much as trembling. But the angels, who are far greater in power and strength, do not dare to bring from the Lord a charge of blasphemy against those supernatural beings. I didn't really understand this, but I'm going to read a quote from David Guzik. Um, he helped me understand it a little bit. He said, Here Peter contrasts the behavior of those who walk according to the flesh to angels. 
That is faithful angels. The faithful angels do not slander or exaggerate in what they said or how they represent the sins of others. These who walk according to the flesh did. So we don't need to, if somebody is sinning, if they're a false prophet or a false teacher, we don't need to exaggerate their sins. That's not going to help us. Uh, we need to not walk according to the flesh. What they're doing wrong is wrong. We don't need to exaggerate those things. God is just. He's going to judge them, okay? We don't need to, we don't need to exaggerate their sins. We can trust God. So verse 12 uh, then says, These false teachers are like unthinking animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed. They scoff at things they do not understand, and like animals they will be destroyed. Their destruction is their reward for the harm they have done. They love to indulge in evil pleasures in broad daylight. They are a disgrace and a stain among you. They delight in deception even as they eat with you in your fellowship meals. They commit adultery with their eyes and their desire for sin is never satisfied. They lure unstable people into sin and they are well trained in greed. They live under God's curse. So they lure and entice unstable people. So this is a great reason why we need to be stable in our faith, right? So we talked in 2 Peter 1 about the seven things we can do to be stable in our faith. Peter lists them. He says, virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. Those are the things we can do to be stable in our faith. But if you'll notice, Peter is not... Um, very cordial in his, <laughs> in his uh, accusations against those false teachers. And I think, you know, he says they're unthinking animals, they're creature of in, creatures of instinct, they're born to be caught and destroyed. Um, destruction is their reward, they're disgraced and a stain among you, they delight in deception, they're trained in greed, they live under God's curse. We need to understand this is very serious, and also that Peter is talking to them, I, I, I equate it to like a loving father would his children. He's not wanting his kids, his, they're not his kids, but his, his, the people who are in the church, he's not wanting them to be dissuaded to the left or the right. He wants them to stay strong. He wants them to stay strong in the faith. He's, remember, he's dying, and this is what he's leaving them with, so he wants them to remain strong. Ephesians 5, 11 through 12 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So we should be doing exactly what Peter's doing. We should be exposing them, and we should be bringing light to those who are not true teachers. Isn't this a light, fluffy message for you guys? Is everybody okay? We're going to keep going. <laughs> what? Okay. All right, so verse 15 um, he says, they have wandered off the right, the right road and followed the footsteps of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. But Balaam was stopped from his mad course when his donkey rebuked him with a human voice. Balaam was motivated by financial gain. He was a prophet in the Old Testament who was hired by the king of Moab to go curse Israel. Um, and he was going to do it, and then God sent an angel to stop him from doing it. But we can learn from his bad example <laughs> that when somebody's motivated by earning money, like you see what some of these pastors are making, and <laughs> I'm not saying money, I'm not saying at all that money in and of itself is wrong, but when you have exorbitant money that you're spending 
on ridiculous things, that's a red flag. Okay? That's all I'm saying. All right, verse 17 says, These people are as useless as dried up springs, or as a mist blown away by the wind. They are doomed to blackest darkness. The New King James says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Verse 18 says, They brag about themselves with empty, foolish boasting, with an appeal to twisted sexual desire. They lure back into sin those who have barely escaped from a lifestyle of deception. I just can't help but to picture that, like, luring back into a cave. I imagine, like, Gollum just, like, luring them back into a cave, you know? <laughs> um, with the, with, in verse 19, the, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption. For you, you are a slave to whatever controls you. So the third point in your notes is false prophets and teachers allure through the promise of freedom. Satan's lie throughout all humanity has been, if you do blank, fill in the blank, it will bring you wholeness, fulfillment, and freedom. If you, if you do this thing, that, that, this twisted sexual thing, if you serve yourself, if you do X, Y, or Z, it will bring you wholeness, fulfillment, and freedom. There are pastors in the progressive church movement, which is popping up all the time, uh, who support and endorse the LGBTQAI plus agenda within the church. Instead of standing on what the word has said about these acts, they lower the bar and say, oh, you don't have to do that. You don't have to worry about that pesky thing called sanctification. Come on in. The reason they do this is because they, their highest goal is love, but it's not the love of the Bible. Their highest goal is love that each person would feel loved 100% of the time. There is zero um, you know, conviction. There's not, none of that. It's all just love. So if I'm not feeling loved, then there's something wrong with the institution. That's what they would say. The definition of love in the Bible is by speaking the truth, right? It's the truth. Giving someone the truth is loving them. They justify their belief system in the progressive church because they view the Bible through their experiences and observations. So their experiences and observations are like a lens right here, and the Bible is out there. And so they can, they're putting on this lens of their experiences and observations that's distorting the Word of God. The Word of God is still what it is, but that what they're seeing is distorted. So they can say, you don't need to be sanctified. You don't need to give up that lustful desire. You don't need to change... Um, you know, whatever your, your sexual orientation is, you can just be who you are and come on in. We believe here that we should view our experiences and our observations through the lens of the Bible. The Bible informs our experiences and our observations, not the other way around. They sacrifice truth in the pursuit of love. They sacrifice truth in the pursuit of love. Both are important. Both have their place. 
You cannot sacrifice truth in the pursuit of love, though. John 8.32 says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The devil wants to tell you, if you just act on those most basic human instincts, just like in, in, that, in that verse, if you just act on your basic human instincts, if you just live your truth, if you just live in line with what you feel on the inside, that will make you free. Well, people are discovering this. You know, the transgender... Uh, phenomena hasn't been around for very long, but the few that have done it years ago, so many of them, the, the argument of why you shouldn't confront one of these people with the truth is that they might go and kill themselves, which is tragic. I'm not saying that we should do that. We should, you know, that we should support that. I'm saying we need to give them the truth because that's what will set them free. The truth is what sets people free, not their delusion about who they might be. So the, the, the agenda that's been pushed is if you don't affirm someone in this community, then they, will, um, then they will go kill themselves, which is a terrible guilt to put on people, by the way. Um, but the science has showed us, the studies have shown, even by uh, very far left uh, organizations who have studied this, um, that... A person's highest, like somebody who identifies as trans, their highest uh, peak of suicide rate is about 10 years after their transition surgery. It's not before they've been affirmed. It's none of that. That's just to, to bring you guilt, okay? We need to be giving people the truth because the truth gives them the option to choose freedom, right? If I tell somebody, here's one path and here's another path, here's the wide path that leads to destruction, here's the narrow gate, then they can make a decision themselves. If we do not tell people the truth, how are they going to make a decision? We know the truth in here. How is somebody going to make a decision for freedom and for truth if they don't even have the options? See, the draw to progressive Christianity is that it feels good. It's nice not to have to tell somebody that they're living in sin which I've done, by the way. It's very uncomfortable, but you can do it. <laughs> it feels good not to have to tell somebody that. It feels good to, you know, to, the immediate self, to, to our immediate satisfaction. It feels good to not have to tell somebody that they have to change their lifestyle. It feels good to not have to confront somebody or to speak the truth to somebody because they're opposing the living God and how they've been created. So that's the draw. That's what we're up against. But freedom is not found in the acceptance and celebration of guilty and shameful acts. Freedom is found in the truth, in the true gospel that releases us from guilt and shame by covering our sin with the blood of Jesus and empowering us to live the way he's called us to live. It's not by lowering the bar. Verse 20 says, And when people escape the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then get tangled up and enslaved again by sin again, they are worse off than before. It would be better if they had never known the way of righteousness than to know it and then reject the command that they are, going, they are given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of the proverb, a dog returns to its vomit. And another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. So our first point 
was that false prophets and teachers will exploit you with deceptive words. The second one is false prophets and teachers follow their own twisted and sexual desires and despise authority. And the third is false prophets and teachers allure through the promise of freedom. So we can combat each one of these points. We can combat their deceptive words by staying rooted in the Bible, reading the Bible every day. Like Jeremy said, 6% of believers are reading the Bible. We need to get in the Bible. How are we going to stand firm? How are we going to stand firm without staying in the Bible, staying in what God has given us? The Bereans were constantly, or were, were referred to as such a noble people. They were so amazing because they, even though they had Paul teaching them, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he knew his stuff, they still searched out the scriptures for what he said. They didn't just take his word for it, right? They, they searched it out. So we need to be examining the scriptures. And to the second point, they're, they're following their twisted desires and they despise authority. This means we need to examine each person we're learning from. Don't just click on YouTube on a pastor who's got a big following and learn from them. You have to know that they are going to be teaching you the truth. Don't just sit under anyone. And we can combat their promise of freedom by revisiting the gospel often, which we're going to be doing right now um, with communion. If you need a communion cup, you can raise your hand and uh, somebody will bring you one. Everybody got one? Good. There's a couple over here. Thanks, Max. We need to revisit the gospel often. Our freedom is found in Jesus liberating us from our bondage and sin, not delving further into our bondage and sin. So we're just going to take a moment and reflect um, on how the Lord has delivered us from our bondage and sin. If you're a believer, I just want to encourage you to take a moment and just thank the Lord. Just pray, hear from Him. First Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, 23 through 26 says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can take the bread. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is my new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's take the cup.
Lord, thank you that you, you saw us in our sin and you, you in your compassion reached out. You in your compassion sacrificed yourself willingly on a cross so that you could bridge the gap between our great depraved sin and your holiness, Jesus, your holiness, God. We're so grateful that you don't just leave us where we're at. You don't, you don't just dismiss our sin, but God, you wash it away. You wash it away with your blood. Lord, we are so grateful for the sacrifice that you've made. If you never do another miracle in our lives, that is the greatest miracle. And we can always point back to the Lord reconciling us to God, the greatest miracle of all time. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.